Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 109 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Amon Woman. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This week, Hannah speaks to Lotfi Nathan about his Tunisian revolution drama Harker while we review the film. Plus, we say goodbye to Marvel's most lovable a-holes with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and return to Seoul in Davy Chu's tale of an adoptee's search for identity. Plus, in our hot take, we dive into some Guardian spoilers and there's a lot to discuss in that regard. So much happens in this movie that I'm very excited to get into. But before all of that, we must discuss the cast for Gladiator 2. Because my goodness, Ridley Scott is not playing any games with this. He's got Denzel Washington, the greatest actor of all time, in my opinion. He's got Pedro Pascal. He's got Paul Mescal. He's got Joseph Quinn. Clarice, how are you feeling with so many of your crushes being in one film? Are you, are, are, you, are, you, are you okay? Pedro Pascal is in it. Yes. Pedro Pascal is in Gladiator 2, Hannah. As well as Paul it's Mascal. Mad. It's Pascal, Mascal. Yes. It's all the cast. <laughs> <laughs> I... Clarice, how are you feeling? How are um, you doing? I don't know. It's really Scott, like, reading my DMs. It's a bit freaky at this point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the first movie is a big reason why I did four years of ancient history at university. So I'm like scared about what's gonna happen <laughs> i might just so you, leave and so, go live in rome and you'll never see me again <laughs> so what you're saying is you were entertained by the first movie i was <laughs> i was entertained <laughs> in this life and I'll, the next <laughs> you know i i did i just did a gladiator piece for an upcoming up for an upcoming issue of empire and i've always loved the film and like doing that piece sort of set me on down a rabbit hole on uh, YouTube, just watching clip after clip. And I'm annoyed at myself for not putting it on my sight and sound top 10. I freaking love that film. It's a masterpiece. I'm going to use the M word masterpiece. Um, and yeah, I cannot wait for this second film. Like I was, when it was initially announced that it was definitely going to be a thing, I was like, hmm, I don't know. The first film is great. It doesn't need a second then they announced that Denzel Washington is going to be in it. And I was like, okay, maybe I should get this one. And then just the cast just keeps getting crazier and crazier. you got Connie Nilsson coming back. you got Jamon Honsu coming back. It's insane. Hannah, how excited are we for Gladiator 2? Not as excited as you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, you know, it's a great film. Proper anti-Arab. <laughs> Made up a whole lot of historical bullshit about Arab slavers at the time that weren't even operating in that area. Um, so I can only hope that um, really Scott uh, listens to the historical consultants this time. <laughs> Fingers crossed. You heard her, Ridley. Uh, beyond that casting news, how have our weeks been? Clarice, what have we been up to? You were, you were doing a thing with Guillermo del Toro, is that right? I mean, not with. <laughs> <laughs> that implies there was a lot more uh, interaction than there was. Yeah, I did... Um, this week was the 50th, or this year is the 50th anniversary of The Wicker Man, um, the original one, not the Nicolas Cage. Not the piece! <laughs> not the piece! Yeah, it was the first version I watched, and I had to admit that, because I was, basically I went, I 
chatted to Edith Bowman on stage for a little bit as part of a whole thing. Um, Reese Shearsmith was there. Edgar Wright was there. It was like all fans of the Wicker Man collecting in one place. But yeah, she asked me like what my first exposure to it was. And I had to be like, it was the Nicolas Cage movie. And <laughs> I did make myself a t-shirt that said, um, killing me won't bring back your goddamn honey. <laughs> <laughs> but then i saw the original wow. and I, I i i went to appreciate that but um yeah it was really fun and it was really cool to be followed up immediately by a video message from papa <laughs> papa del toro <laughs> um who spoke so beautifully and eloquently and i was like i look like a real idiot now thanks guillermo <laughs> Honestly, that that is the only way that guy knows how to speak. Uh, it is really something. Um, I remember this is a few months ago now. I was, I went to like a twenty minute preview of the of his new Pinocchio film, and then it was followed by a Q and A by him afterwards. And I was just hanging on every word. It was the man. Like, I mean, we talked we talked about this before, but there's so many people that we speak to who are fine in the interview scenario, but there's a clear, it's a different skill being a really good actor and knowing how to talk about your film and promote your film. And Guillermo is one of the best I've seen at being able to talk about his film in an eloquent way, as he's saying, to really And also, sell it to you. a great actor when he was on Always Sunny. <laughs> so he can do everything. <laughs> mm. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Hannah, what have you been up to this week? Any, any on stage stuff? No, it's been at my desk trying to get work done. <laughs> That's what it is. Been chained. I had a nice. You too. I had. I, I, I'm the same this week. I went to Margate over the weekend, which was really cool. And last week, uh, I got to interview Andrew Scott on stage, which was really cool. Um, but this year, this week has been knuckle down, get your stuff done. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm working on something big uh, right now. Um, and it's going well, but I can say I think that I had a nice uh, long chat with Asif Kapadia this week um, for a piece that will be going up on GQ in the next few months or so. Um, and yeah, uh, we had a really good rapport, as they say, and I'm a big fan of his. So it's good to link up and chat about the work he's done and what he's got coming up. Because it and chat about the work he's done and what he's got coming up because it's very very exciting. But it's not as exciting. As this podcast episode, because we've got a lot to get into, and we're going to get it started right now with Harker. Ali خرج من الدار عنده ثلاث سنين. قال لي ما عادش راجع. فد من هالبلاصة. ورلي. تعرف تسوق؟ عندي شبرمي. مش مشكلة برمي. عن تعرف تسوق؟ تعرف الحساس هذا؟ Badlands, you gotta live it every day. Let a broken heart stand as the price you gotta pay. Keep pushing until it's understood, and these badlands start treating us good. Um, our theme for today is uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three soundtrack, and that is maybe the closest song on the Volume Three soundtrack to this movie. Um, so Harker. Well, they've had some bad times in Tunisia of late. Um, it, this film is about a young Tunisian man who dreams of a better life and sells contraband petrol on the black market, 
When his father dies, he is left to take care of his two sisters with eviction from their home looming. Um, so this is kind of set and set after like the like quite a few years after the Tunisian Revolution um, that was started by uh, uh, the Arab that kind of was the Arab Spring. Um, and Lotfi Nathan, he's actually Egyptian American, so he's not Tunisian, but he wrote and directed it. It stars Adam Bessa, Salima Matug, Iqbal Habi, and Najib Alagui. Um, and uh, yeah, so we kind of got into, you know, his understanding of the revolution, shooting in Tunisia, um, some of the kind of references in the in the um, in the script, like even the name of sister is called Alyssa. That's got some very Carthaginian origins. So yeah, so please enjoy this interview with Lotfi Nathan. Uh, Lotfi Nathan, welcome to the Fate of Black podcast. It's personally such a pleasure as someone who is half Tunisian. So, oh, right. I <laughs> heard that you are, yeah. Ah, yes. Um, it's so, I suppose, um, why, why, this, why this story? Because this is your first feature debut. What mm. was it about this kind of story and this subject that you really wanted to grapple with? Yeah, so I, um, initially I was, I was really taken by the story of Muhammad Bouazizi because, uh, because to me it was, it seemed like such a film, you know, as uh, as it, as tragic and extreme as the event was, I was honestly thinking about uh, the novelty of it too. That um, there was this sing singular character who was used as a catalyst and a symbol, mm -hmm. you know, and that uh, this story uh, that could be character driven could have such a bigger scope. Um, and then also I was coming from documentary film, so I thought, okay, this is something I could go and uh, research and try to, you know, absorb and, and make very, you know, like the, the effort of making something authentic there uh, was was compelling, but it was also extremely difficult. You know, I think basically I dug myself into, uh, into a hole in trying to do this movie that I had to just finish at a certain point. Um, can you tell me what you mean by that? Dug yourself into a hole. Well, because it's actually it's, it was extremely difficult to try to make a to to try to interpret uh, first to try to understand, you know, what the uh, the climate, it, you know, in a completely different place. Um, Is that like kind of political climate, but also <laughs> political? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even even trying to understand the political climate, I think, was kind of. Uh, futile for me you know like i and 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 nor did i want to make a political film you know i think it was not ever the agenda and when i tried to kind of introduce that a bit in the script it felt really unnatural you know um so really the, like the saving grace was keeping it always centered on a character you know um but then uh you know, first, first to try to understand that that place, and then to uh, logistically to make the film there. You know, mm -hmm. being based mm -hmm. in the U.S. and that was really an uphill battle. Um, then, of course, you know, the film is in Arabic, and I don't even speak Arabic, so that was difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, I do. I'm learning on a Duolingo, and also, um, did you do it in like in Arab? Did you do it in Tunsi? Because again, yes. I'm not, I'm not, but again, that specificity of trying to get that as well. 
especially oh, characters, yeah, yeah. you might but, not know the variations of it. I mean, I wrote the script in English, and I mm -hmm. just imagine they were, everyone was living in, like, New Jersey, you know, and, like, <laughs> then we translated the script, and, you know, it was really in collaboration with an amazing local team, and mm -hmm. cast and a crew there that, uh, you know, went through every line yeah. Well, this is what should be said. This doesn't this isn't what people would say. This is a better way to emphasize this, you know. And then also it was on Adam's shoulders to uh, to really make that natural, you know. Mm -hmm. We had a great friend on set who was always like checking Adam's dialect, you know. I was very concerned about that stuff. But, um, well, because, well, you know, it's one thing to have, like, Western audiences watching who can't, you know, notice it. But if you have, like, Arab viewers who are like, wait, <laughs> or Tunisians are like, wait, sorry, you kind of want to get it right for, like, everyone. <laughs> yeah, and I think, exactly. But I think in my experience, it's like, first you try to, first you try to make something authentic for the very specific place. And then, you know, work outwards from there. It's interesting because um, you've got, I always think about Ashkal, which is Yusuf Chebi's film that kind of grapples with a similar subject with self-immolation, but yours, that comes from a far more of um, the systemic problem, right? And yours mm -hmm. is coming from the human individual. Did, were mm -hmm. you aware of that going on? Like that film coming out, had you seen that film? It's because it's, it's, it's so interesting. It's like uh, when you get films that have the same kind of uh, um, subject, like, like kind of jumping off point, and but doing it in vastly different ways. Yeah, no, I didn't see that film. I, I I didn't. Oh well, you should you should see it. It's nothing like yours, so that's that's a good thing. You don't want to do the yeah, same film. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because um, you know, this is not set when uh the Arabs Black Catalyst started. It and I remember reading this Guardian piece about what's the legacy, what's decades on, and I went mm -hmm. to Tunisia last year. Um, and like, yeah, there is this still sense that it's like um, it's nothing has changed too much, like. There's obviously they got rid of um, uh, uh, Ben Ali, but like, again, all the infrastructure, all the things the same. So again, it's like, oh, we had this moment. And then suddenly it's like, yeah, it's got changed for so many people. You know, tell me a bit about kind of like, again, I know you said we were struggling to understand it, but also speaking, you, did you speak to local people to write the script? Like, how did you yeah, kind of, of work out exactly? Yeah. 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 It was really, you know, all because of the dialogue with uh, local people there. And uh, it's funny, as soon as I got to Tunisia uh, to start researching the script years ago, I took many trips there, like more than maybe 10 or 12 trips before we shot the film. And um, Oh, you've been there more than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I was very unsure about doing the movie at first because I thought this is such a big undertaking to do this story that's very much about like the national identity and a very delicate story. and. Um, it was it was interesting because in Tunis, in the capital, there was like this kind of uh, apathy, maybe about Bouazizi and like, uh, you know, I, I think the attitude towards him in my interpretation was that it, the attitude towards him was parallel to how people felt about the revolution as yeah. a whole. You know, like he was he was a hero. He didn't ask to be a hero, but then he was. And then uh, it was it was just kind of like an indifference about him or maybe like a resentment, you know. Yeah. And uh, anyway, 
because the film took a while to make, we had the hindsight of the aftermath of the revolution. So it really didn't make sense to do a biopic that way. Uh, so I, you know, ended up creating this character that was an amalgamation of people that I was encountering. And I, I thought, um, and took some of the most interesting parts of that, you know, like mm -hmm. his occupation as a, as a gasoline vendor and, and then a contraband smuggler, yeah. you know, that, that to me was, um, was very interesting. And uh, then the ending, you know, where the, where the story goes without giving it away, I think it was important to do something that reflected the sentiment that people seem to have rather mm -hmm. than this kind of like uh, victory, you know? Yeah. I kind of see it a bit like, um, kind of like the way George Floyd happened. And it was like, at the moment, it's like, oh, wow, it's happening. And then it's like, in the years since, it's like, okay, that's that. And we kind of moved on from it. And it's like that sense of, it's all good in the moment when the fan is, the fire is like burning. <laughs> but yeah, then when, exactly. they, when it dies down. Um, yeah. yeah. I may be a bit cynical, but I think that there's like a, there's like the, the fashion of outrage, mm. you know, and, mm. and that like sentiment that, you know, everyone has to have, you know, in the moment, but then it's like, uh, you know, and, and you're, and you're bad if you don't have it, but, or if you don't, if you don't uh, project yeah. it, but then uh, it, it evaporates quickly, mm. you know, and um, yeah, there's a whole conversation about that, but it's, um, you know, I think that it has to do with my take on the ending of the, of the film, I guess, mm. how how people perceive that. So um, you're, the youngest is called Alyssa. And I was wondering mm. if that was, it was that on purpose because um, the Queen of Carthage was called Alyssa. Because <laughs> in my head, I'm like, oh, that feels like a very specific thing because obviously she's known as Dido, but Alyssa was only found in Carthage. Or was that just totally, am I reading too much into it? <laughs> no, no, no. In the, that was actually it. I mean, I like... Oh, I liked, yay! <laughs> yeah, you, you nailed it. I liked that name. I mean, I'm an outsider. So when it would come, when we're coming up with these things, I just kind of like, you know, I th just thought that was charming that, that there was this, like, this young, this young character who in my mind is kind of like the overseer of the of the story right um, yeah and that she would be Alyssa I thought that that was nice well I kind of like the way that it connects the kind of prosperous past of Carth like Tunisia like it started off for 800 years it was this powerhouse it's fought yeah and so in a way I really like the way it connected to the past but also kind of like the current situation now yeah. Where it feels Tunisia is still in this kind of infancy. And I think that happens a lot with colonized states. Like, yeah. how do you, and it look across the, you know, the Middle East and all these places, like, how do you get that when you just have, you know, after it was Bourguiba and then Ben Ali, and then now it's like, oh, and it just feels like it's never getting out of it. Right. Yeah. Shoot. So tell me a bit about shooting here. Cause again, you know, I really, um, you know, you have these kind of modern ruins. It's like these, these places where, they were supposed to be built. It was all this promise. It was like, we're going to build all these places. And then they're left half built. And then it's people using it. So get it, tell me, I know you said it's quite challenging, but like, how were you able to kind of location scout and get all these places that you were able to use? Mm. No, modern ruins is a nice, uh, nice way to put it. I think there's a lot of that there. I, I mean, I had like, a, again, this, this kind of outsider 
uh, interest. You know, it's like the way you visit a place and you might go and you might go and and uh, like take a picture of things that people who live there might not like uh, be as interested in. So I was very like, I just thought the desert was interesting. You know, I took it, a bus. I took a six-hour bus from um, <laughs> Tunis to Tozer because I wanted to see the Star Wars set. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> obviously Star Wars began there. Yeah, and I it, just remember. You mean? Yeah, yes. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. It really annoys me that like all of Star Wars has basically been erased of like its Tunisian Arab origin, like as if like these white people would survive in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I remember. It's really true. Yeah. But I remember like on that bus and just seeing. Or, you know, as you go for all these places, just seeing all these half-built homes, you didn't know if it was yeah. getting, if it had been left, because it was so quiet. You didn't know if it was just been left derelict or if it actually that was going to be built. So it's kind of like, it was mm -hmm. all around. You have the big city areas in Tunis and you have like, they've got the big, you know, the they've got kind of like the Silicon Valley sort of where they're trying to bring in business. I remember going to like a, a nightclub strip that felt like a beef there, but then you kind of get out of there and you're like, oh no, the rest of the country is like still yeah. No, exactly, exactly. So I loved that. I mean, it was very important to, we filmed a bit in Tunis for our interiors because we just had to. We had 24 days to shoot the whole movie. So it was really, uh, wow. really packed. But we uh, we made a point to get out to these locations. We had an amazing uh, local production company and our uh, production manager who became a friend, Khaled uh, Barsawi, he like, uh, was it really, he's like an explorer, you know, like one of those uh, off-road four by four trucks with, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. with like the thing on the side, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we just go, we would always go exploring and I loved taking trips there to go and, and just look at landscapes. So, and then there was always something I was into with the uh, the light, you know, like the, the uh, office buildings and like the bureaucratic, spaces always had these like, very harsh fluorescent lights um so i thought we'd embrace that and then uh you know the bricks the red brick that you see everywhere it's like uh that became ali's home and then uh yeah so i mean it was uh it was challenging but it was probably the more exciting part of the uh prep was choosing the locations yeah and and tell me i think we've got much longer but tell me a bit about casting as well and it's interesting again I, I watched winners recently i don't know if you saw the um the iranian film by hassan nazar um and... no but I, I actually had lunch with him two days ago oh did you yeah, oh, yeah. he's great i did a q a yeah. with him last uh, week for last um but like i think especially from from uh, Swana regions, Arab world, beyond that is of course Iranian. That it's like there's a lot of people who are non-actors who kind of make it in. Can you tell me a little bit about getting casting yours? Because obviously Adam used to be like a fisherman and then like he went into acting and there is that, he just looks like, what I love about him is that he looks like he's worked several days in the sun. <laughs> you know what I mean? He has that face, like not yeah. a, you know, and even you kind of like your supporting cast. Can you tell me a bit about like working with them? And especially as someone who's come from the documentary space, getting in, get, like, you know, working on that muscle. Yeah, so initially I thought we would just cast all non-professionals, you know, and I thought that that was the best way to do it. I definitely didn't want to work with, uh, with like, an expat who was, or, you know, uh, but that's actually kind of what we ended up doing. Adam lives in Marseille. 
but like he he's just such a great actor that he could really absorb the role. And I learned in working with Adam that like a, I think a good actor will do that they they do that work on their own, you know. So he really did the work of immersing himself. Um, he took all of the things that I had researched, you know, like initially character of Ali was based on people that I had met and he would go and speak with them and, and spend time with them. And he was just kind of like, a, he was like a sponge, you know, taking all of that in. He ended up being, uh, I saw this great relationship between him and the non-professional actors, um, where he was kind of guiding them helping them like even like get their marks you know and making sure that they performed you know against him and uh but at the same time they were really grounding him you know i think he loved being surrounded by real people and uh i you know over the years of developing the script i and going to tunisia to research i'd met people along the way who i just thought like his person's got to be in the movie you know like the uh the boss who sells the gas and you know it's so funny that run because when we were <laughs> we because uh, they have a, the border police who were like on Algeria and I remember when I was going the people that I was with they took us on like um uh at night time like we'll go 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 to the Star Wars set at, at sunset anyway so wow. I'm in this car with this guy who's like a Tunisian film producer he's like smoking every two seconds and it's like dark mm -hmm. so it's off road mm -hmm. on these dunes and at some point, because it's so close to that place, it's so close to the uh, Algerian border, Algerian, Algerian border, Libyan. It's close, close to the border of one of those. I can't remember now. I've like, like, now in my head, I'm like geography. But anyway, we got stopped by the police, and it turned out in one of the other cars, the, his son was like driving. His eleven year old was driving the car, and I was like, "This is oh the most. God. This is the madness." He's like, "I love to do yeah. it. It's so mad." Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't get stopped. You didn't get any stopped by border police while you were doing anything. Oh, we got stopped a lot. Yeah. But there's just checkpoints. There's checkpoints everywhere. So, mm -hmm. but we had a, uh, you know, we had all our permits and stuff. It wasn't uh, that wasn't so difficult. Well, you got it done. We got it done. That's all. That's all I know is we got it done. And hopefully they'll allow you back. So that's great. Yeah. Um, oh, lovely. Thank you so much. I should say I should. <laughs> I should. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I I suppose um this kind of grapples with the kind of. Um, on the ground individual level of how the Arab Springs affected like the Tunisian people, the context is that Ben Ali, who was the president, corrupt president, was ousted. And obviously that left a kind of like vacuum of, you know, all the potential that's going to go on in the country. Suddenly there's no infrastructure is failing. And basically, you know, a lot of the times in Tunisia, as has been since like the French independence uh, it's like never got out of his infancy, which has had a knock-on effect to the basically the civilians uh, who live there. So I suppose, your, uh, Clarice, what was your kind of understanding of what was going on in the country and how that affects the main character? And do you think that there was enough there to get get you to give you a handle on the kind of political, social, cultural context that's trying to grapple with? Well, because that's actually a really interesting question because it's both the thing I liked the most and the... I really I, I really liked this movie, but I think my smaller concerns about it do have to do with the wider context. Uh, so the the film is inspired by uh, Mohamed Bouazizi's uh, self-immolation, and that's the thing that kind of sparked the Tunisian revolution and 
um, it feels very much like an attempt to understand, you know, why would an individual, you know, what are the circumstances that would drive an individual to that point where they would do something? Because I think it's very easy for us intellectually to understand why someone would take that action um, and, and sort of make that sacrifice or be driven to that point of desperation. But at the same time, I think it's very difficult emotionally to understand like how you get to that point. And I think this movie is, is like really trying its best to grasp that. And I think as a character portrait, like it's incredible about like just seeing how this guy, like it's just this thing of like, he just gets keep being beaten down again and again and again. And you see his face like crumble. We could get into the performances in a second. Um, but I would say, I think I would have appreciated more, a little bit more of like seeing the outside world because you see some of the protests. So you see how other people are reacting to this, you know, the corruption, the economic instability. Um, but, you know, I think revolutions are, are, are kind of a weird mix of, of like individual circumstance and also like uh, there's like something in the air and I think it's the something in the air that I wasn't quite getting out of this movie if that makes sense um so yeah I think to answer your question specifically I think it just needed a little just to step away from Ali's life a little bit to really get that part of it across yeah I think it did need to zoom out a bit and 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 I suppose certainly um, with the kind of um character motivations and backstory that was for me also slightly lacking, especially when it came to his sisters. I mean, I want to get into Adam Bess's performance because I feel like a little, a little bit, because I feel like that was the the thing that was like kind of carrying the movie pretty much and the cinematography. But Amon, like, how did you kind of get, uh, understand the other character, his character, but also you know the supporting characters? Obviously, there's two sisters, and we also have the younger sister Alyssa, who is serving as a narrator in certain moments, adding this kind of ethereal Malick-esque quality to the film. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I think the two sisters are played by uh, two sort of newcomers uh, and who, who are not actors. And you can feel that coming through, this, through, the, through the screen. I love the more instinctual nature of the acting as a result of that. And I think they do a really good job. And the characters themselves, I was really intrigued by, I think, the older brother, um and his relationship and his dynamic with Adam Bess's Ali, um, especially considering what they've been doing in the past and where they are now. Because basically just to set it up a little bit, the older brother has been taking care of the family while the father's been sick, whereas Ali has sort of moved out um and has not really been in contact with them at the start of this movie. And it's really interesting what they do with that dynamic when those roles are reversed to a degree. Um, and I really sort of like that storyline. The narration... The narration was interesting to me because at times I did find it a little bit jarring, but in terms of what it's speaking to thematically... I think it's spot on and it gets to the heart of the movie in a really clever way because you can basically interpret it as this Arab spring, which is what, what you brought up, Hannah. Um, they can look at that as a metaphor for the movie in that 
people are just refusing to acknowledge the rot right in front of them. Um, and the dialogue, the narration really speaks to that, sets up the movie perfectly in that regard at the start of it. Um, so yeah, uh, at times I found it in other scenarios in the movie a little bit jarring, but that opening narration especially I think is really, really incredible. Yeah, I didn't mind it because I think it's such a bleak film that that adds a sense of hope. And um, But I do think, again, it's kind of falls. I feel like so much focus was on creating and this character, this like lead male protagonist that it kind of didn't really grapple with the fact that like, you know, the, the eldest sister wanted to go to university, now she can't. <laughs> so what about her, you know? And I think it's so focused on what's happened to this guy and we don't really know much about this kid um, other than he wasn't getting on with his dad and he like left and he's come back. It's like, I don't know, it's kind of like, I think trying to have empathy for a character sometimes, I think I needed a little bit more to understand what was going on there other than just, you know, just another bloke who's angry at the world but I think because of Adam Bess's performance, it really, like, he, I lo what I love about him, and so many actors you get kind of in the Arab Middle Eastern world, is that a lot of them, like, you, like they, they, they were not trained actors. They didn't kind of, like, I'm going to go to, you know, drama school. They like, had lives, and Adam Bess was a fisherman. <laughs> it's like, you look at him, it's like, oh, that's a guy who's worked in the sun. Like, he knows hard labor, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so there's a real kind of, like, I don't know, sometimes a tiredness, and I love the way that the kind of, even the fact that he's wearing military fatigues, it's like he's so tired of the world and he's wearing fatigues. And it's the dirtiness. I'd love to get into like the visual imagery of it, the aesthetic of it, because I think the cinematography was beautiful and very foreshadowy <laughs> in, in so many ways. Um, Clarice, how do you think, um, you know, how, what did you uh, make of the shots, the colours, the light and use in it? Uh, there's something about like the colour grading of the movie that was really beautiful. I don't know. It's just it looked it looked fantastic, and I think there was a really great combination between, like, uh, I guess a sense of like visual realism, <laughs> like the yeah, the sense of like the sun and the air and the heat. Like you could really get that beautifully across through things like the color grading and the lighting, and um, even just the way stuff was shot. But then every once in a while you'd have these like more sort of poetic like little moments like I loved all the scenes of him smoking I don't really know why but just the way that they're composed just these little moments of like peace and contemplation and there was one where he's kind of smoking in front of a window and the curtains are closed and you so have you have this incredibly soft light like coming down and it looks quite like 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 martyrdom like saintly like that sort of like almost a religious vibe um I think there was like there was such a great balance between like finding these yeah finding these moments of poetry but the rest of the, the movie as a whole is so grounded and feels so like immediate and present mm. and and I, I suppose it was anything on the music front that you you noticed them on yes it's awesome. That's all I have to say. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's really, really good. The percussive nature of it. There's a drum beat that opens the movie, which is just like, I, I, I literally above my head. I was like, okay, this is really, really good. Um, and that returns at various points throughout. Yeah, Eli Kessler, not a composer I had heard of before this movie, but a composer I'll be looking up after because I think he did really good work here. 
And not that I want to uh, give away the ending, but I have to say I did actually really like the final shot of this ending because I think it really summed up um, just where where it is now when it comes to these kind of protests and what you said about martyrdoms mm. and like just the real kind of sense of the society and how we're no one's paying attention <laughs> really. It actually it actually reminded me of the movie that we discussed. I think it was only last week. How to blow up a pipeline, and mm. that what protesters and uh, do and the length people will go to to make a statement to be heard and how important that is not just for them but for wider society um that's uh, it's very much a case of recency bias because i just had it in my mind because we just watched it but that is a film that i thought of while watching this film well this is out in cinemas so we'll do our screen stream or skip verdict clarice uh i would screen yeah I'm on. I would also screen. Yeah, I'm going to say screen two. Okay, so uh, from North Africa to East Asia, this is Return to Seoul. How long do you want to stay? I don't know yet, but uh, three nights. I need your passport, please. Mais vous êtes Francis? C'est ta mère Biologique, je pense, Tu vas essayer de retrouver tes parents Pourquoi non I'm always chasing rainbows Watching clouds drifting by. I think I did that wrong, but I'm so fucking tired. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's also a song from the another movie that we're talking about this week. Oh my god, on theme, on point. This is Return to Soul. On an impulse to reconnect with her origins, Freddie, 25, returns to South Korea for the first time, where she was born before being adopted and raised in France. The headstrong young woman starts looking for her biological parents in a country she knows so little about, taking her life in new and unexpected directions. Directed by David Chu and written by Chu and Laure Badoufle, it stars Jimin Park, Oh Kwang Rock, Guka Han and Kim Song Young. Um, I fucking love this movie. <laughs> I think the thing that really struck me immediately about Return to Seoul is that uh, the synopsis I, I read, I think, can sound like a lot of movies that we see every year. You know, the story of an auto- uh, adoptee or, I guess, an immigrant returning home and, like, rediscovering themselves. Doesn't that sound like such a lovely movie? But that's not what Return to Seoul is. At all. <laughs> um, so Hannah, I mean, did, were you sort of surprised by, um, maybe this is my fault because I intentionally don't really read synopses or watch trailers before I, I watch movies because I like to be surprised. But were you surprised by kind of the tone of this movie and emotionally no, where it went? No, and it's, I'm the same as you because the minute from that opening shot and we see fed freddie's face i know oh <laughs> she's trouble <laughs> i don't think um i really related i actually really related to freddie so much probably related to her more than most characters i've seen last few years and you know as you you mentioned you know i'm not adopted but i don't have didn't have a connection to my biological father or home 
And there was a lot of crossovers about that kind of, and I suppose the way that manifests and feeling this weird sense of both abandonment, but also like being caught between two cultures and like having something that's not really yours because you haven't had that direct connection, but then wanted to go and the complicated feelings of that. And, and the way that this plays out from the age of, I think she's 25 to 33 in intermittent years. I was like, oh, is this my life? Like, it really felt like that. Um, obviously, different settings, but just the emotional journey that she goes on and just, um, yeah, just really, oof, yeah, it just kind of blew me away. And I just love the fact that it wasn't melodrama. It was like, no, this is kind of very grounded and tonally kind of, fuck you. It really doesn't give a fuck about your feelings or your expectations. Uh, yeah, I just, it's, just loved it. So I think that's the thing. I think we just have always this such an expectation that like if you were born into a certain country, into a certain culture, and you were removed from that culture and you come back to it, that every single time it's going to be this wonderful and pure and like very straightforward experience. And I really loved that Freddie has really like complicated feelings about being Korea, uh, Korean, um, being born in Korea. And she, like, rampages through this city, almost like she wants to hurt it. Like, there's a sense of bitterness of, like, fuck you, like, why did this happen to me? Why do I feel so disconnected to this place of my birth? Um, so, Mon, I wanted to ask a, a little bit more about Freddie and, like, her interactions, I guess, with the people that she she meets. I mean, first off, she's just sort of making friends with strangers and then sort of being quite mean to them <laughs> and then also when she uh goes to the adoption agency she ends up there and she puts the request through and one parent responds mm -hmm. yes yeah freddie miss oh. i can erase you from my life with a snap of that my sucks. fingers that was such a good line <laughs> brutal <laughs> yeah um i completely agree with everything you're saying uh it's an incredible character study um i think the relationship that stood out the most to me which i absolutely feel this film needed was between uh freddie and tina her translator friend um it's so interesting how much that dynamic can add to scenarios and to characters because as she's translating Freddie's words to her Korean mm. biological father, she's taking the sting out of a lot of what Freddie is actually saying and what that is saying about where Freddie is at and also the dynamic between Freddie and Tina is so interesting to me. I loved, loved Sorry, that can I just jump in? There's a line in it where she goes... Where Tina she goes, you're a very sad person. <laughs> I was like, and I was like, I know. I, and I was like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah, because it is just like again. <laughs> sorry, just like one line can just like sum up so much. Mm -hmm. But yeah, sometimes you don't even need a line because Park Jimin's face is so expressive. There's so many shots of her just staring off into space, and it's clear even though she's not saying it, saying it but verb verbalizing it, that she's thinking about the what if, the why, the how, all of these things. Uh, so I'm not sure we're going to get to the performance in a bit, but it's really, really special. But for me, I think 
what really struck me about this film is how it's all about the constant messy evolution of our lives. Um, and the way in which the story is structured with its uh, to, you know, time, time jumps only goes to serve that point. Um, and again, this, the messiness of it all. Clearly, you alluded to it, but there's no, it's, it's, it, there's nothing about this that is straightforward. It's so unpredictable at almost every turn. And I absolutely love that. Yeah, Hannah, I want to ask about Park Jimin's performance, but specifically in relation to, as you mentioned, we're following her over eight years and it sort of revisits mm. her periodically. And she's so transformed each time. Like she turns up in one moment with like mm. the red lips and yeah, this like Blade yeah, Runner yeah. coat, which I'm obsessed she's looking with. Good. <laughs> and you know, she becomes an arms dealer. Like she's just constantly shifting her identity. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that side yeah. of the performance. I think, and even just like the way her hair changed. And again, like my hair changed out, it started out long and then it got shorter and shorter. <laughs> it's like, oh wow. But it, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, I, I think certainly, and I think certainly in our twenties, especially when you're trying to, when you're trying to find your identity as a person, but when you're kind of split, when you've got so many pieces that make up who you are, you're trying to like fit them all together. And sometimes it's like, that's the trial and error of life of like working out what works for you and what doesn't. And, you know, I think she, she, her ability to kind of just again this kind of like quite unapologetic quite blunt person who actually thinks that she's covering up her emotions but actually she's not masking them so well and that's the beauty of like i love it when you see the mask slip on her face in certain moments like and then mm. the kind of like suddenly a glint comes back to her it's like oh now the wall's back up and i think she's very good at you know seeing when you're going in and out when she, what type of person that she's been on who she wants to be at this point in her life um and yeah I mean and there's even like this bit in it where I love it and it's I think it's in the first section but she just starts dancing <laughs> she just starts dancing in the end and it's like <laughs> that feeling of I just need to let loose and just be feel like some feel some euphoria and just have my body and it's sometimes verbalizing and just get escaping and pushing a negative energy away because it's the only way to kind of like get out of a feeling and it's like that that yeah, it's those kind of non-verbal situations and character explanations and mm -hmm. explorations that I find just really beautiful. And I, yeah, it's interesting because again, you know, as you said, when she got into like the kind of Blade Runner-esque phase and like even the way that, you know, I love the way Korea's like soul and Korea's shot in this where it kind of like fluctuates. Like it's like throbbing with like this very like rampaging energy in those kind of scenes. And then later there's this like, 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 pale regrets when she's with like the paleness of the scenarios when she meets her biological family like this the the kind of setting and the production design is all feeding into sort of the mood of like her as well it's like extension mm. of her psyche as mm. what she's her whereabouts so so yeah sorry i don't know if that answered your question but <laughs> no perfectly and you're so right about the the city because Seoul I mean look I've never been but it looks like a really cool exciting city to be in and the way that like Wait, it's a black trip <laughs> I would love to go <laughs> but like the way that it can just shift really suddenly and it gets it just turns so hostile on her um is so well done and so subtly done 
And Amon, before we wrap up, I wanted to add, I'm sorry again about the score, because I really liked the mm. score for this. It it sounded like um, Bauhaus, like it was going to just constantly go. I thought one of their songs was going to play. <laughs> and it, I was like, oh no, <laughs> this is the score for the movie. Uh, but thoughts, thoughts. Mm. Yeah, love the score, love the needle drops. Uh, those music scenes, Hannah, you sort of described it perfectly uh, about what it meant for the character. Um, and I love how it sort of comes to the fore in a very organic way in those scenes in particular. Um, but the score is really, really good. Again, composers that I had not heard of, and I did have a name written down here somewhere, and I've lost it. Um, figure that, I'll do it. Uh, again, composers I hadn't heard of, uh, but it's really, really great and really adds so much to the overall storytelling in the film, which is exactly what you want a good score to do. True. So uh, will that be enough to make this a screen stream or skip? Hannah? Screen, defo. I'm on. This is the best film of the week. Screen. I agree. And I will also say, oh God, don't reach it. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, the, this is the best film of the week. Um, yeah. Yes, I agree. Yes, screen. <laughs> from Return to Soul to Return from Gun. James Gunn. He's back, baby. Okay. Name's Gunn. James I mean, he's got to have done that at least once in his lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> this is Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. I'm going to tell you something. I'm Star-Lord. I formed the Guardians. Met a girl, fell in love. That girl died, but then she came back. Came back a total dick. Oh, please. He left out some important information, but that is the gist of it. Come and get your love. Come and get your love. Love that track. Redbone. Which may or may not make a return. Groot. I forgot I have a little baby Groot. <laughs> he dances. What, you, you were showing me the mantis earlier. Do you have do you have every guardian there somewhere? My goodness. No, I don't have Star Lord yet. I need to get him. Okay, got to complete the set. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. We are still reeling, or rather, Peter Quill is still reeling from the loss of Gamora, but he must rally his team to defend the universe and protect one of their own. If the mission is not completely successful. It could possibly lead to the end of the Guardians as we know them. Wow. This is written and directed by Gunn, James Gunn. And it stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, Karen Gillen, Pom Clementiev, Vin Diesel, Bradley Cooper, Sean Gunn, Chick Woody Iwuji, and Will Poulter as the Warlock. I like, they, I like, I like they call themselves the Warlock and not Adam Warlock. Just the Warlock. Well, Adam was not a name given there. it to him later. Warlock was actually, it was actually him, and then he was called the War Warlock, and then a group gave him the name Adam later, so. Flint dropping knowledge. I like it. I like it. Keep it coming. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, written and directed by James Gunn. For a second, it did not look that that was going to be a reality. If you remember, James Gunn was fired and then rehired. 
uh, how much does his voice in this trilogy, but in particular this film, shine through? Especially in an era where we're talking a lot about AI these days and about their potential to maybe in the future, you know, make blockbuster films or whatever. And there's also the the other side of it in that the Marvel machine has often been accused of, you know, being too machine-like and not letting directors' visions shine through. Is James Gunn an exception to the norm in that regard for you? Does his voice really come through? Hannah, let's start with you. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> there was a someone who I'm not allowed to say who said it, but a person who's directed a Marvel movie who said, basically, James <laughs> Gunn can do what they want, can say can write whatever they want. So actually, you can see at this point, I mean, it's kind of a triumph for him that he kind of got sacked and he's come back. He's now DC chairman and CEO mm. of DC Studios, did Suicide Squad, asked to do Guardians. So I think he's kind of like, if this is his swan song, it's very finely tuned to his way of singing. Um, uh, and, I, and, I, and I think it works. And if anything, it's interesting. I do feel like some of... This is definitely made by the same guy who made The Suicide Squad. <laughs> mm-hmm. That, it feels like, as much as he brought a bit of Marvel playfulness into DC, which has kind of been known for its gloomy tone, I think he might have brought that DC darkness into Guardians, which I think has often been seen as quite a bright, poppy, kind of bombastic sort of franchise that, yes, it does, you know, I know it does grapple with sadness, but not the way this one goes. This might be, like, the most traumatising... Um, uh, traumatizing film in the MCU, but one that actually is kind of really dark as well. Whereas you know some of the some I'm not saying the other deaths in films haven't been, but some of them are quite lighter than this. Whereas this is like no, this, I mean I was sat with a critic and they had to leave because they found it something they'd gone through and they found it they couldn't sit through. It was, it was like just quite triggering for people. I think it's wow. yeah. I was surprised that um, this is what. Also, it was yeah. Is this a 15 rated movie? I don't think so. Um, I think they they're saving fuck. that first fifteen. <laughs> You're allowed <laughs> one fuck. This is what yeah. I love about the age rating. You're allowed a single fuck, and you can still be PG thirteen. I think uh, Deadpool three or Deadpool and Wolverine or whatever they end up calling it is going to be the first fifteen or eighteen rated. Because it was darker than Multiverse of Madness. And yes. that was more horrifying, but this was like, wow, this is really dark. There's some <laughs> imagery, bleak. we'll talk about it in the spoiler section, but especially in the final few minutes or so, there's one particular scene which they linger on some graphic, really graphic stuff. And I definitely, we'll, we'll get into that in the spoiler section because I'd be intrigued to get your thoughts on that. Um, but Hannah, you mentioned how dark this film was, and you're absolutely right. A large reason why that's the case is because this film very much centers on the story of Rocket and filling in a lot of his details and his backstory, how he came to be, um, his dynamic with the high evolutionary, who is the villain of the police, played by Chikwudi Iwuji, very well. We'll get to him in due course. But what did you make, Clarice, of the story being centred on Rocket Raccoon? I will just say this. We, we'll take, we take it for granted to a degree because we've come to expect so much from the effects which are Fantastic in this film, by the way. But this is a film that, again, is centered on the story of a a, a raccoon who talks, and it absolutely, at least for me, worked. Um, Police, take it away. I mean, the first Guardians was the first Marvel movie I ever saw because I saw a raccoon with a gun on the poster, and I was like, I need to see this. (laughs) I want to watch that. I want to watch that. 
um, <laughs> I I thought it was beautiful. The Rocket storyline is so moving, um, and I think well, I think like what I've not really seen people talk about is like James Gunn's like a lot of his superhero comic booky characters like all gravitate around this theme of like you are not defined by the shit that happened to you in your childhood like you are defined by the people who are with you now i'm like trying to not spoil the line in the movie that made me fucking sob (laughs) (laughs) um but you know you see it's peacemaker suicide squad even in guardians 2 with ego like that was very much the storyline and i think He's so good at writing that kind of emotional arc. Um, And I just, I was completely blown away by it. Like, this is, I think, my favorite Marvel movie I've seen. Because to get to, like, it is really funny. It's a really funny movie. (laughs) But to find such a powerful, like, emotional root with a story about a raccoon... A tiny raccoon and an otter and a walrus and a bunny and just their interactions mm. to make everybody in the room start like violently sobbing because <laughs> of <laughs> what happens in that situation um mm. i just loved it it was beautiful right like some of the lines i just thought oh beautiful this what is yeah. it the sky the sky is infinite was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. i think jump on the just to like like um jump on the back of that what you said about childhood trauma and stuff i definitely think that the guardians franchise has really grappled with daddy issues it's like oh yeah all of 100%. them and even the second one especially well, yeah and i find it interesting <laughs> that this is like the running recurring theme of this and how actually it manifests in this one when you get when you get into a level where you have an almighty father-like figure, mad scientist who thinks he's a god, and I kind of love mm-hmm. that part of it because that's when it's like super dark and like the ego. I mean, it's called ego, so like of course he's going to be a narcissist, megalomaniac, like, mm-hmm. maniac. He's got a big but, ego. Yeah, and I just say, I mean, maybe the, I mean, I don't know, and even like there's a bit like again, not to spoil, but even like you know, Drax, his motivation, he is he lost his child. And so I love that the way, and then you have Gamora, and then you have Nebula, and I think, you know, that's why I think Nebula and Rocket really connect, because they've both been tortured and experimented Mm -hmm. on, and they get each other. And I think what I really liked about this film is that, you know, that you can tell that these are actors who have been with these characters for a while, and that they've grown with them, and they understand them all, and there's that real lived-in quality to their performance, where it feels they bring a real sense of depth and humanity to something that is kind of fun, ridiculous and fantastical. Yeah. No, they absolutely feel like a found family that really, really love each other and love being around each other uh, as much as they insult each other (laughs) all the way through this film. Um, Let's go into performances before we go into hot take because I want to talk about Bradley Cooper for a second. His voice work as Rocket Raccoon all the way through this trilogy and the Holiday Special and the Avengers films has been fantastic. But here in particular, I think he goes to another level. And it's so interesting. A lot of the time when a famous person is doing a voice, it takes me a good few minutes to get it right in my head that this is the character and not the famous person talking. I, I've never needed that with Bradley Cooper. Rocket has always felt like his own, like his own distinct person 
and Bradley Cooper has been all the way over here. Um, and I think that, again, is a testament to how brilliant he is in this role. For me, the other standout was probably Pom Clementia, who continues her MVP form from the holiday special, uh, which she was absolutely the MVP of that. Here, she is fantastic. I'm going to leave Mantis talk to Clarice, because if you see her face right now, she's clearly dying to talk about her. Uh, but Bradley Cooper, for me, I just, I think he's incredible. Oh, do I talk about Mantis now? <laughs> yes, this is, your, um, this is your cue. No, I just, I, I really love that character, because, and I think what has evolved so beautifully over the course of these three Guardians movies is that, I will say the writing of the, the women in the first Guardians is not my favourite. They're quite, they're a little one-note tough ladies. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, Gamora, Mantis, Nebula, um, Cosmo even, I'm going to throw her in there. <laughs> like, all these characters now, like, there's, there's the, the toughness has so much, so many layers to it now, and they're allowed to be, mm-hmm. they're all funny and weird. And um, for me, Mantis, it's so cool to have uh, a comic book character who cries so much, and that's, like, powerful. And she's, like, her powers is being really loving and being really emotional and empathy yeah um which is i think quite rare and especially for you know the stereotypical you know woman comic book superhero yeah strong female character being literally strong strong. yeah yeah Yeah, and being like nothing and i just love that's why i love mantis (laughs) so much because she's so real (laughs) and 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 also i feel like it has been the star lord kind of show for the first two films and yeah. certainly mm-hmm. after uh, Guardians, I would say Endgame as well. Uh, uh, sorry, after the Guardians Endgame and then the Guardians Christmas Special. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it Christmas Special? Yeah. Holiday I feel special. like feel like the expansion of the other characters' roles was great. I loved the dynamic between Dave Bautista and Pom. Um, I thought that was really, really beautiful. Um, yeah, Mira's game. I will say, though... I, you know, the Nepo, I think Sean Gunn is fine. I just don't, I feel like that for me is like, you are just putting this person in more of the film because they're your <laughs> brother rather than him actually contributing much to the narrative, you know? He did. Is this because he called Cosmo a bad dog? He made up for it, Hannah. Okay. No, it's <laughs> just, in the I just think it's just, I just, I just don't, I, I, it, he he does okay, nothing was, for me, thinking. and it's like we've had and yeah we've had the whole. I can't whistle, so I'd be useless with that weapon. <laughs> I think oh, I've watched whistle. too much That's Gilmore Girls to have any negative feelings about Shotgun. <laughs> 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 I think he's great. Can I just ask? Quick, oh, maybe we should save this for a spoiler bit. Okay, quick thing. Last thing before you go into hot take, Clarice Lockery did a tweet the other day, oh, no. <laughs> stating that Star-Lord should have done what he did to Thanos in that critical moment in Infinity War. I'm not saying he should have done it. I'm saying he's totally saying, justified Chris? in having done it because if I got pushed off a cliff and I would expect him to punch Thanos right in the face because, like, that's love, baby. <laughs> I do. It's not I rational. It's not I, rational. I, I get so upset when I, people are mean to him about that because what... What the fuck do you I, mean? I, be his, logical. His I, no, he was a man in love. He fell in love with a girl. I mean, I if we actually blame that. Devil's Advocate, we should really blame Nebula. Yeah, like, yeah, we, I've, I've discussed a version of this with Khalees, but like, there, there's a lot of people to blame in Infinity War. But Star Lord is one of those people no. because 
there's a time and a place for this sort of thing. It's it's exactly like Will Smith and Chris Rock. Does Chris Rock deserve to be punched? Yes. This but get your flowers first. <laughs> get your award first. Oh my God. And then get him in the backstage or whatever. With Star Wars. Are we, are, we okay? are we comparing Chris Rock to yes, a joke? Yes, yes. It's working. decimating half the universe. <laughs> it's an example. It don't add up. It was in my mind. That equation was does not it. add up. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, when half the universe is on the line, that's not the right time to do what you do. That's what I'm saying. Um... Anyway. No, I'm sorry, but <laughs> that was the love of his life. Like, he's not he's not going to wait around. Sorry, but no, I'm very defensive of this. Clearly. It's an clearly. act of love. Um, he was in love. That's, there's no rationality you, you, or logic Two things in it. can be true. It can be an, an act, act of, of love. love it's, an it's, act of stupidity. It's an irrational thing. It did fuck things up. And one thing I do appreciate about this film is that it acknowledges that. You know when you see something like, oh, that yeah. is someone that's someone who's listened to the fan comments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Someone's been on Twitter yeah. and be like, yeah, fair enough. Because that, mm-hmm. that, for me, that moment is kind of like the Titanic thing, the rose in the rose. Is there room on the actual thing for Jack? <laughs> and it's like, should Peter, should Peter Quill have done it? I think it's yeah. that sort of like... And also, in hindsight... We've got confirmation, there was room. There was room. <laughs> sure, in hindsight, maybe he regrets it, but I will defend... I will defend him. But also, I will say this as well. Doctor Strange does say there's only one possible outcome. Yeah. So maybe that needs to happen. Just the same that he needs to give Thanos the um, time stone. So maybe this was yeah. all part of it. It needs to get to this place for us to do it. Can't argue with that. Um, wow, am I, am I defending <laughs> Star-Lord now too? <laughs> Star-Lord, <laughs> not Rat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hannah, if you want to take the time to change your squad cast name to number one Star Lord Defender, then that, that's no, I'll stick with Badlands. We are going to go to our screen stream or skip recommendation on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Hannah Flynn. Yeah, screen. But I, I will say my final thing, just in a non spoiler sense too many needle drops. You don't need that many needle drops. Hmm. Interesting. We might get into that. Uh, Chris. Uh, screen. I might have booked tickets to watch a third time. <laughs> Ooh, look at you. Uh, it's definitely it. a screen for me. I think this is the best Guardians film in the franchise. Uh, it's been... You know, I've really liked Wakanda Forever, even though I had some issues with it. But it's been a while. I don't think it's been since No Way Home I've come out of a Marvel film. Sorry, in the like MCU or the Guardians franchise? In the Guardians franchise. I was going to say. Yeah. No, the top three MCU films for me are Civil War, Infinity War, uh, Black Panther, I think. Uh, I think it's the best Marvel movie. And that's big talk from Taika Waititi's biggest fan. Yeah. I do love Thor Ragnarok, but that didn't have enough trauma in it. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was too light. And on... (laughs) Didn't have enough trauma. It didn't... He wasn't bringing the boy level of trauma into that. He was having a a bit of a break. And on that happy note, it is time for our Oh, extended version. I like it. Uh, Clarice, what was the line that made you ball? Oh, it was. Oh, I'm gonna butcher it now, but it, it's. <laughs> we are. We are not the hands that made us, but we are the hands that 
guide the hands. Um, yeah. Oh, that was great. fuck, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to cry. Linda Cardellini getting another Marvel role and killing it. Uh, she did a great job. I, Lila's death, I did not see that coming. I literally went, oh, oh no. <laughs> I knew those little, those cute little guys no. were going to die. <laughs> Second I saw no. them. Um, the graphic part that I was alluding to earlier was when they peeled back the high evolutionary face. We didn't talk a lot about Chick Woody or Woody, but I think he's fantastic in this. And I think his villain performance is one of the reasons why this is the best Guardians film in the franchise to me, because it was between one and three and the villain in the first one, Vernon the Accuser, as well played as he was by Lee Pace, he wasn't that much of a memorable, memorable villain in the way that the High Evolutionary is. But when they pull back his face, they do two or three shots where they linger on his very messed up, bloody face. And that, to me, was the most graphic part of the entire film and the most surprising thing, in my mind, that they got through the rating system and into the film. Because... I imagine some younger kids, especially, might be a little turned off in that moment. Especially. Yeah, but we all saw Indiana Jones, right? It's no different. And and Captain America, the first Avenger. Oh, yeah. He Red Skull, isn't it? Yeah. Freaky looking. What I really liked about um, this is uh, the the kind of horror elements to it. And you've said, Clarice, that like it kind of he's drawing on his B-movie, James Gunn's drawing on his B-movie early oh, yeah. career. Trauma. But there was... But there was things like there's David Cronenberg's Existence, which is I love that film, and like um, the kind of biological weapons and the way that bio like this kind of biological technology manifests in the film that in this like the sp- like the space station that feels like a cross between Existence and like Willy Wonka, Tim Burton's Willy Wonka, and even Tim Burton like there's like there's scenes when they get onto the counter Earth where it feels like. Edward Scissorhands and even some of the, the kind of like the way that some of these anthropomorphic robotic animals have been you know adapted it kind of made me think of that as well and also like the island of Dr Moreau like those kind of elements where it's like science fiction horror I really enjoyed it um I thought it really worked really well together yes um I love the fact that the never approach a marvel hero in a hallway rule now has extended to the guardians because that one take action scene they do in the final act where all the guardians are teaming up working together kicking ass was awesome that was probably my favorite moment of the film mm. um what was your favorite moment in the what film what did that start with is that kind of like daredevil the tv show that started, that's, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, since yeah, then and then like <laughs> and then i feel like there's loads of things i remember like captain marvel really- yeah, and, but then also yeah. like Drew Pierce, who wrote Iron Man three, but he did this movie Hotel yeah. Artemis, and there's a great hallway scene in that one yeah. with Night uh, with <laughs> Nice uh, Sophia Patella. But then he was also brought in to do like Punch Up, uh, Hobson Shaw, and he wrote the he wrote the hallway scene in that one. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was yeah, great was in this one. Soon, so. Yeah. Did you have a particular favorite scene that stood out to you? Um, oh God, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, you know, I kind of really want to talk about, um, I do want to talk about the high evolutionary. I thought it was just really good. He, I, I like the kind of like theatricality of it. Like he was a bit camp as well. And I feel like I love that. He's not like a grounded, he is that mad scientist. He's kind of like ridiculous and, 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 and it just felt like, oh, he, and, and I think what's interesting about this film, it's like, 
you get into like really I don't know I feel like has Peter approved this movie because it does really grapple with this sense of adapting genetic and also testing on animals and all these things and I, it was making me think of like you know how like in um x-men first class and that idea about the holocaust and the concentration caps and also the way that people would use innocent people to test on them and the way that you know even look at like gynecology like the origin of gynecology was basically this white doctor like using unequal practice of chest testing on black women who were slaves and had no consent and indentured Irish servants. So I really think it kind of, that's why I think was so horrifying about it because it's actually a reflection of somewhat what's been going on in our world and sci-fi obviously is the best way, but it felt quite, oh yeah, it, it kind of gives you a chill up your spine. Um, and I also really liked um, Will Poulter's Adam Warlock. Um, I think making him this dumb kid was really interesting. It was a really good way of doing it. And Will Poulter, do you remember he used to have this, he started off in like comedy. He had this, um, the school of comedy, which he was in, in like channel four or something. He's always been in a lot of comedy films. And I think that was pretty fun to see that pump play out, but also hit the, hit the real moments of sadness. Like it's just beautiful. And the, the bit that made me cry, actually, the bit that made me cry was when Nebula goes, uh, Drax, you're not the destroyer. You're a dad. And I just like went, oh, and I made that little noise. And I was like, that was a bit for me that got me. Yeah. I think the bit for me that made me cry was when Rocket got made captain. That was a very nice moment. Will Porter, I agree with you. I just think he's a bit underused. Um, that what could, could have done. I, I feel like there's a lot left on the cut and move forward with him. And I get it because this is already quite a long film. I did want to touch on Peter and Gamora a little bit. Uh, Chris, I read your review. You had some really good stuff to say about that, so I'm going to leave this to you. But I really, really loved how messy that was. There's a lesser film, there's a lesser version of this film that has Gamora and Peter slowly reuniting and then at the end ending up back together. And they don't go that route. And I think the film is much better for it. Oh, I think yeah. it's a great breakup movie. <laughs> Because the whole, I loved taking this like totally insane storyline with her getting pushed off the cliff by Thanos, and then there's a few past version of her comes through and actually going, okay, none of that really matters. This is a movie about what it's like to bump into your ex, and they like barely remember you don't care, have moved on, and you haven't, mm. and that's like all that their relationship really is is like Peter trying so hard to to be like you used to be this person to me why are you not this person mm. to me and that's like so relatable and it's so well acted like i thought chris pratt was great in this movie he, and this is the best chris pratt performance fantastic. of the last years and by far i'm literally <laughs> begging other directors and other studios to like understand whatever happened on that set that got that performance out of him because he can be great mm. in the right circumstances um, just not whatever happened in the Jurassic World movies. All <laughs> uh, the Super Mario Bros. Movies. When you think about um, it, the Guardians franchise is the meatiest role he's really had. We're really grappling. Yeah. I mean, he had the Tomorrow War, but like that's not that's based like this. It's like he stayed with the characters. This is what I'm saying about he's had this character for a while, and also mm. what he's gone through in his personal life or something like that. Again, I wonder if like that's part. You know, again, he's got all this emotion and all this and I think he really channeled it really well in this but it's interesting though because it was getting annoying me where he kept on like you don't remember it's like she can't remember it's not the same person it was really getting me really annoying me. So I'm like, it's like that thing but there's this so there's a beautiful line in it where it goes 
like there's a version of our story where we had a beautiful mm-hmm. life together and it's like that's oh. i think that's just like really lovely mm-hmm. like i think that's a really beautiful thing but yeah if it was good you know it didn't do the cop out of doing like the rachel mcadams channing tatum movie where you know she loses her memory and they get back together eventually no. you know mm. yeah and also yeah. it goes back to that idea of like we're not shaped by our past. Gamora's mm. different because she didn't go through the experiences that she went through over yeah. the course of the Guardians movies. Like it all comes back to the same theme and that's that to me is good like good writing. And yeah. I wonder sorry but there's another thing. Oh sorry, did you want to say this? Iman? I was just thinking about the no, I'm no. group thing we're thinking about Gamora. I really like the way that you kind of finally understood how they understand group. And it's because, and I think, and for me, I don't know what you took away from it, but I thought it was, oh, you understand it because you care for them. It's the love. You can care for people. You can understand people who you love. So when at the end he goes, I love you guys, I felt like that was because we'd been with these people long enough that we have an affection for them that we now can hear what Groot says. That's how I took that bit. That's a that nice reading. That is a reading. lovely reading. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I love that. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm not going to get any better than that. We're ending this podcast here. Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing by whatever medium is the safest for you. Subscribe, rate, review, comment, like. Now I said it already. The podcast, and it makes a difference when you do that. So get on and do it. And tweet us or Instagram us or TikTok us. Any questions, hot takes, Fade to Black Pod Don't on TikTok Twitter, on socials. <laughs> <laughs> do not TikTok, Clarice. I take it back. Unless you're sending um, me Guardians edits. That's cool. But don't. Unless you're sending Guardians that. edits. I don't know why I'm repeating everything you're saying. We've got this recorded. Anyway, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and on TikTok at Amon Woman. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. I don't know what I am on TikTok. I'm just me. And I mean, I feel like I don't want to like point you to places because I'm in and out. I don't know. I'm like a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dark horse. I'm a maverick. I'm a wild card when it comes to social media at the moment. <laughs> so maybe just contact at Fade to Black Pod if you want to find me or talk to me. Um, so yeah. There you have it. Film friends, TV friends, Guardian friends, friends in general. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.